All right, good morning. Well, we are in Romans 1, 18 to 32 today. And this passage is a sobering one. And it is meant to produce, in part, a trembling in the audience. And that would include us today, to whom the scriptures have been given. I mean, a trembling towards God, a trembling of humility, of gratitude, of awe, for what has been given to us by our creator, by our savior in Christ. But it's also possible to respond to this passage with a trembling away from God, even against God with a defiant anger, an independent resistance, a a self-lordship. And when people turn away from God in this way, demanding to live life on their own terms, They are, in fact, pushing down the truth of God, the truth that God alone is creator, he is savior, and that he's full of compassion, full of love for us. So let's jump in to see how Paul addresses some pretty difficult topics in this passage. And I've organized our study around three main thoughts. First, we're going to look at God as our truth-defining wrath-revealing creator, savior, and Lord. Second, we're going to consider how, spiritually speaking, we're all much more alike than different. We all need a savior outside of ourselves. And then three, we're going to consider how there's really two paths offered to us in Romans 1, of being given up or raised up. So first, let's look at God as truth-defining, wrath-revealing creator, savior, and Lord. And You know, we we really need to understand both God's grace and his wrath to get the gospel. Let's read verses 16 to 18, jumping back a little bit to our passage last week. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I didn't do it. It Wasn't me says the little kid with red marker all over her hands. When you said, who did this art on the living room? Now, We do this too, right? I mean, this is not point our fingers at little kids. Am I the only person here who tries to persuade herself that a chocolate peanut butter protein bar is actually a healthy choice? I mean, can we be honest? This is a glorified candy bar. It doesn't say Reese's peanut butter, but basically that's what it is. But it seems like a healthy choice because it has 20 grams of protein. But there are sober examples, like the social media influencer, author, who once encouraged millions of followers to love Jesus, to live in light of the cross, but she's turned from the cross. She's pivoted, and now she's telling all her followers, including many believers, you know what, maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. Own your wanting. Eat the apple. 
in essence, she's saying, you do you. Do what you want. But what about me? What about me recently when somebody said something to me in a public setting that felt shaming? It felt demeaning. And I just wanted to convince myself, Elle, just let it go. Let somebody else talk to her about this. It's, it's just not worth the stress of an uncomfortable relationship. And then as I was preparing for this talk, the Holy Spirit said, don't suppress the truth, Ellen. And so I went and had that conversation. But we're all prone to suppress the truth when it's painful, when it's costly, when it's inconvenient, when God demands that we deny ourselves. And today, sisters, there is a seductive rings true to our modern ears message that says, you live your truth. In essence, we don't need Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No, I'm my own truth. My life is my own. And way, don't you get in my way of living out my truth. And Romans 1, Paul is saying to these kinds of messages, no, no, this kind of living, this kind of thinking actually leads somewhere so profoundly displeasing to the Lord that it actually leads to a wrathful response. Now, what is God's wrath? And why is this the response to suppressing the truth? Well, wrath in God's eyes, for him, it's not some cleaned up higher version of our sinful anger. No, John Stott says it this way. It's a holy personal hatred of evil. It's his holy hostility to evil and a refusal to condone it. God's wrath is directed against evil, and it's going to come ultimately when he comes to judge this world, but it's also being revealed according to this passage today, presently. Now, suppress the truth. What does that mean? Well, I've already kind of used a word. It means to push down, and the actual word there, it is like when you're pushing down something and there's a counterforce against it, like a spring. It is an active, continual, aggressive resistance to what is obviously true. So then the question next is, well, what truth is being suppressed? Like what's being pushed down? Paul explains this in verses 19 to 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, they've been clearly per perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. And this passage is, is a key portion of scripture to understand what's known as general or natural revelation. Basically, what scripture says about how God discloses truth about himself that is universally available to all. Now, it's general. So as the leaves start to turn beautiful colors in the next few weeks, we're not going to understand that Christ died for us and resurrected. No, that need, we need specific revelation. But what is available to all, according to scriptures, is that there is an intelligent design. There is a master design to this world. I mean, we see that even in the creation of our bodies. Tim Keller puts it this way. The beauty and intricacy of the world can help people understand that there must be a creator. Uh, somebody said, 
I forget who this was, but he said, I have too much, um, it takes too much faith to be an atheist. And God holds humanity accountable for what we do with the knowledge revealed to him in the creation. And God as creator is a really important uh, truth for us to understand. We're going to see that as we go through Romans and see how God is creator and Lord over our salvation. But our key point here in this passage is we are not to insist that we are creator, that we are the source of life, truth, and power. Because when we do this, we are in essence shaking a fist at God and saying, oh, no, you don't. No, you aren't. I am my truth. I have in me a deep knowing. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm enough. In fact, I am. That is a pushing down of truth and is a pushing aside of the truth giver our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verses 21 and 23 in our passage tell us that this suppressing of truth is very consequential. It's not neutral. It leads somewhere. Let's read. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this idea of exchanging the creator for something in creation will be repeated in a little bit. And this exchange is what the Bible calls idolatry. We replace the creator for some part of his creation to use on our terms, according to our desires, according to our personal beliefs. We, we essentially do a 180 on what Isaiah 45, 19 says, the Lord speaking, I am the Lord and there is no other. I, the Lord speak the truth. I declare what is right. Now we know that the Bible speaks of another being who radically opposed the most high and said, I will ascend. I will be the most high, the father of lies, the devil, who is a deceiver. And and scripture helps us by humbling us and saying, our hearts can be easily deceived. We call what is false, true. We call what is evil, good. Just more examples of suppressing God's truth. Now this, this is a serious position to take. I mean, that's what this passage is. It is very sobering and it should cause us to tremble. And when those in our lives who we love come to these conclusions, we cry out to God, our father, the God of truth. And he's always going to have the last word in someone's life. So we hold on to that, that he is a God of mercy Because listen to where this pushing down of truth leads us. Paul does not lead us to our, leave us to our imaginations. The the next pat, the next verses 24 to 28 tell us clearly that God gives them up who persist in suppressing his truth. In other words, he gives them what they sinfully want. I like how Courtney Doctor explains this in her study of Romans called uh, In View of God's Mercies. 
she explains how this act of giving up means, quote, that God will, as a response to continued rebellion and open idolatry, will release people to the misery of who we are apart from him. He releases us to who we are apart from his intervention in our lives. She's, she goes on, this is not God rejecting people. It's God releasing those who persist in rejecting him. Now, does God do this like, I'm done, go do it. No, he, he does this saying, go this path. If you insist on going this path, but the hope is always that in the misery of our sin, we're going to turn back to him. And when we turn back, he's not off in the distance. We turn, he's right here. I've been waiting for you to come home. That's the hope. That is the hope that we have in Christ. That in a second, we turn back, his arms are open, and he welcomes us to forgiveness, love, new life in Christ if that person has never truly known Christ. Now, what are they given over to? Once again, Paul doesn't leave us to try to make it up on our own. He gives us three descriptions. Verse 24, they are given over to the desires and lusts of their hearts to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, the idea here, as well as in the next verses, 26 and 27, is of being ruled or enslaved by desires. And the impurity here in this verse is about sexual immorality. It's an impurity with your body of what you're doing sexually. It's basically, I'm going to do whatever I want sexually. And Paul is calling to account all sexual immorality here, which would be any sexual activity outside of God's intent and outside of the context of marriage, which is one man with one woman. So this is calling out anything like pornography, adultery, uh, promiscuity, hookups, paid for sexual encounters, of course, any kind of sexual violence. All of that would be covered. Then he moves on to the next description, verses 26 and 27 where dishonorable passions are spoken of in the context of same gender sexual activity, women with women, men with men. He calls these acts contrary to nature, which means that they are an example. One of the examples of using your body sexually in a way that goes against God's created order as male, female, beings, again, created to express ourselves sexually only in the context of marriage. And there's a beauty, again, in the way God has revealed his creation in the way that a man's body and a woman, male and female, can come together uniquely in sexual intimacy. So yes, this passage is saying what it seems to be saying, that God does not bless same-sex or homo of the same sex sexual behavior. In fact, sisters, the testimony of God's word is clear from beginning to end that every time this is mentioned, God says, don't. Now, it it goes without saying that, I'm going to say it, that today there are many man-made revisions, many man-made concepts of, of personhood, of identity, regarding God's truth when it comes to sexuality and identity. And these are hotly debated issues. And it's beyond the scope of the time for me to do a deep dive into this. 
But I do, I do want to offer some thoughts for us to remind us that this is not just an issue to discuss. This is a discipleship opportunity. And knowing that I was going to teach on this passage several weeks ago, I reached out to a whole bunch of women who I've discipled and counseled over the years, women who would find themselves in verse 26 and 27. They have had same-sex temptations. They've been in relationships. They might have identified as a gay woman at one point. One of these dear women uh, divorced her husband to pursue a relationship with a woman. But these women are all walking with the Lord, loving the Lord. And I asked them, I said, hey, I'm going to be teaching on this passage in Romans. And would you tell me, how does it impact your heart as a woman of Christ when you see, hear, or read believers who are pivoting and trying to make God's word say something different than what it says about sexuality. In came their thoughts. I've got six quotes to share with you from these women. Number one, it stabs my heart. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is so deep that there is no making peace with this topic. Number two, it hurts and grieves my heart to see someone buying into a lie, being tossed and shipwrecked, by false winds and waves of doctrine, by feelings and emotions. Three, you know what? This is from a young mama. Uh, She was in her 20s when I first started walking with her with little kids. Um, She said, you know what? The most frustrating and hurtful temptations have come from my own brothers and sisters in Christ who are waving a rainbow flag on social media. Few more, it's sad that they don't believe God can still be good and loving in the midst of those of us who have these stories. It's such a disservice to their brothers and sisters to waver on truth. It it makes me feel invisible and dismissed as a wife and a mom because the work the spirit has done and continues to do in my heart and mind is considered to be a work that's impossible or is wrong or vain. And then finally, another, another uh, 40 something, uh, married mom, and there's singles woven in here. She said, it makes me sad and I feel betrayed. At one moment, we were fighting together against sin and the enemy, and they gave up the fight. It's like I feel keenly the weakness that comes in losing a battle partner, and I'm more vulnerable in their departure. I mean, sisters, how we all need each other, right? To to live as those who are anchored to God's truth and love and That is the key issue here. Are we humbly living under God's loving lordship with our desires, our bodies, our relationships, or are we suppressing God's truth to use our bodies the way we see fit? Now, the final he gave them up is in verse 28. And as I was thinking about this, even since last night's teaching, this may be the most severe one. Paul gives the most descriptive words to this. He gives them up to a debased mind. Let me read this passage. And that means he gives them up to basically an evil mind to think whatever they're going to think. 28 to the end of the chapter. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, 
disobedient to parents. Whoa, Lord, keep me going here. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. I mean, that is quite a list. And actually, throughout the New Testament, there's several lists like this where God clearly names out what it looks like when humankind goes rogue from the creator and his design of life. And it's never a pretty scene. And this leads now to the second of these three points I want to consider with you. And that is, we're all much more alike than different. Every single one of us here. We all need a savior from outside of ourselves. And you see in verse 32 there, Paul is saying, we can practice these things and give hearty approval. But he also makes a huge pivot here. And I'm going to dip a little bit into chapter two. And and this whole section that I started with my passage today, it's leading us, that's going to take us to the end of Romans three. And Paul is making a case here. Basically, we are all sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. But have you noticed in this chapter one, he's using a lot of us, them language. They did this. God gave them up. They deserve God's wrath. This this is a letter to a multi-ethnic congregation. There's Jews and Gentile believers. He's speaking to them all. But can you imagine the Jewish believers listening in this first chapter where he is focusing on Gentiles. Like, can you imagine them probably saying, yeah, Paul, tell them. Yeah, Paul, they deserve God's wrath. I mean, I see myself in doing that at times, don't don't you? But then he pivots in chapter two and it's boom. He's saying, hey, all y'all who think you have it going on, all of you who are pointing fingers, listen here. You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges and passing judgment on another, you judge yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I mean, ouch, but this is God's grace to us and love to us because this, this gospel that Paul was not ashamed of, he's also not ashamed to call sin, sin. And at the same time, to point us to the forgiveness and the hope for transformation of anyone with any temptation or any sin. Do you remember how Paul opened up this letter, how he addressed all the Jews and Gentile believers there? Verse six, he says, those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's our identity. And that is what is meant to inform our behaviors, our thinking, and how we respond to our desires. And that leads us to the final point that I want to share with you today. And that is that there are two paths in this first chapter of Romans. Those who live raised up and those who live given up, suppressing God's truth. As I mentioned, this passage is meant to lead us to tremble. And according to Paul, and if we're honest with ourselves, we all find ourselves somehow in Romans 1. Somehow we're all there. But here's my question. 
do you also find yourself in Ephesians 2? A letter that Paul wrote just a few years later from a prison in Rome to the church at Ephesus. His words here in this in Ephesians give us so much more explanation of why the hope of Jesus in his gospel is so hopeful, especially in light of the passage we've just looked at. Listen as I read from Ephesians 2 and listen how he addresses the exact same things that have just been condemned. Ephesians 2, verse 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience, among whom we all once lived in what? The passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were what? And this is past tense. This is very important. This is past tense. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse four, but God, but God being rich in mercy, sisters, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show what? Wrath? No. Jesus took our wrath. If we're in Christ, we're not children of wrath. No, to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. That's our inheritance. And so... Sisters and friends, as we close up, let me, let me give you just a few kind of final things to be thinking about. We can live in this raised up, hidden in Christ place with God's word hidden in us, or we can insist on living on our own terms, hiding from him, turning from him. Now, the scripture makes it clear. Once you are in Christ, you are no longer under God's wrath but we can still suppress the truth. And we're basically doing things that are aligning with the kingdom of darkness. We're aligning with those with a suppression of truth. So I don't wanna live hiding from the Lord. I, I want to live hidden in Christ, in his truth. We can be women who savor God's truth, stay the course this year with Romans, who savor it, who study it. Or we can be women who suppress it, who spin it, to make it say whatever we want to say. Some of you might remember in our, um, at our retreat in April on gospel friendships, we talked about being battle buddies with each other, helping each other stand firm in God's truth. As Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 6, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. But Timothy, certain persons by swerving from these They've wandered away into vain or fruitless babbling discussion. Do you remember how we talked about this? To help each other, to point out vain and babbling discussion, or as the King James Version says, vain jangling. That's vain jangling. That's not true. Paul went on to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already being poured out. He's near the end of his life. I'm being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. 
I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who've loved his appearing. Sisters, we won't love his appearing if we're not women that are staying firm in the truth. And I want to be a woman who finishes well. I want to finish this race, keeping it, not swerving or or wavering away. But I need your help. I need you to call me out. I need you to encourage me in Jesus, that he's the only one who's trustworthy. He is the truth way in life. And there's going to be so many things that are going to continue to press against us of, no, you make your own truth. You do you, girl. No, I need your help. and, And I'm going to help you too. That's why we come together in the word. That's why we're here in the local family of believers to help each other finish well in God's truth. We can savor his truth and that helps us to savor our savior. Let's pray. Lord, you are the way, truth, and life. And I just praise you that your word doesn't shy away from difficult topics. And that's your mercy to us, Lord, to show us your kindness, your truth, and to make the path clear. Lord, you know that it's a hard, it's a hard path to walk. It's impossible, in fact, without the intervention of the spirit. And so God, I pray, I don't know how these words fall upon my friends here, but I pray that you will bear the good fruit, Jesus, bear the good fruit of giving us a longing, a hungering, for you and your word. Now, I pray that you would encourage us as we discuss these things and pray together because of you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.